when you look at this next generation of Democratic leaders coming up, are they ready to do what she did? No, but nobody's ready. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody actually has what it takes until they get there and figure out that they have what it takes or figure out that they don't. Pelosi not only knew how to get the deal and where the deal was, it's oftentimes that she knows where the deal is at the outset of the discussion and then lets everybody else slowly come around to that place. Welcome to the News Not Noise podcast. I'm Jessica Yellen. In Washington, change is in the air. Pelosi has stepped down. Trump is trying to re-up. The Republicans are struggling with infighting, and Democrats are kind of still in shock that fate broke in their favor. So what's on Congress's agenda going forward? Where are the battle lines, and what does it mean for issues you actually care about, like reproductive rights or having a functioning government? We get to those questions first with Punchbowl News founder Jake Sherman. He knows Congress as well, possibly better, than some elected members. Then we take a more macro look at the political landscape in 2024, including the Trump and Ron DeSantis of it all with Margaret Taleb. She's the managing editor for politics at Axios and a CNN political analyst. I hope you enjoy these conversations. Jake, I'm so happy to have you here. You cover Capitol Hill. You guys did something like what I did. You left where you were. You started your own thing and you're crushing it. Congratulations on the success of Punchbowl News. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You have one of those rare jobs in journalism where what you do looks a lot like how it's depicted in movies. Like <laughs> you actually get to talk to your sources in person sometimes and, and run around Capitol Hill and see people. Can you give us just first a little bit of a sense? This has been a crazy week. What does your week look like? Thank you for having me, Jessica. I'm ha really happy to be here. So my week, what does it look like? It never looks the same, um, but I will say- I Who mean, did you chase? Uh, well, a few things just to lay the groundwork. Number one, as you know, in the, the Capitol is a unique place because uh, reporters are afforded tremendous, tremendous access to everybody. There's nowhere we really can't go. So what did it look like? I was, I mean, for the first part of the week, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she was the only game in town. The Speaker of the House has been the Democratic leader for 20 years, since 2002. Um, we all kind of knew that she was going to retire. We thought we knew. But I thought I knew 12 years ago, the last time Democrats lost the House, that she was going to retire, too. So I spend a lot of my day standing outside of people's offices <laughs> and escaping right. to recharge my phone. <laughs> Totally. But at the same time, we were tracking two other huge stories, the House Republican majority, uh, soon to be House Republican majority wrestling over Kevin McCarthy and whether he'll be the Speaker of the House and a um, mostly uh, uh, ineffective challenge to Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader uh, by Rick Scott uh, of Florida. So we were tracking four pretty big or three pretty big stories. Yeah, I want to get into all of those. So let's start off with Pelosi. And the thing I'd love for you to explain is, you know, she was revered, feared, demonized. Fundamentally, she was enormously effective over many years. What was her unique skill? I wish I could tell you. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the last couple days because something that really sticks out to me about Pelosi is that she is a very, she inspires tremendous loyalty and fear. And I don't quite have a good sense on why. I, I think it's something to do with the historic nature of her speakership. She was the first woman to ever be speaker. She is an incredibly effective legislator. 
Um, and I'm not sure what comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? I'm not sure if she's respected because she's a great legislator or she's a great legislator because she's respected, but it's almost like there's this aura about her where you want to be on her side and you fear what will happen if you're not. And nothing, I'm not suggesting anything really happens. It's not like House of Cards, but people want to be with her. She's a magnetic personality to a large group of Democrats. Also, when you say she's a great legislator, she knows where to find the deal and she manages to find it like I can cut the deal between in this space and she somehow gets that done. And I wonder you when you look at this next generation of Democratic leaders coming up, are they ready to do what she did? No, but nobody's ready. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody actually has what it takes until they get there and figure out that they have what it takes or figure out that they don't. Pelosi not only knew how to get the deal and where the deal was, it's oftentimes that she knows where the deal is at the outset of the discussion and then lets everybody else slowly come around to that place. Meaning if she knows that the deal is, you know, X, she might know that, not say it, but she lets everybody else come to their own conclusion as to where the deal actually is. That's very similar in some respects to Mitch McConnell. Um, in a weird way, because they don't panic, which is something we see a lot in congressional leaders. They panic, they they switch courses when the winds are blowing against them. Pelosi and McConnell don't do that, or at least historically, they don't do that. So the next generation is Hakeem Jeffries, a New York City Democrat um, from Brooklyn, who has been in the House for um, not a long time. Um, and uh, he's never been involved in kind of big ticket legislating in the sense that Pelosi has. But Pelosi hadn't been involved in it either until she got there. So I think it's a little bit of trial by fire. Um, and I, it's impossible to know whether they actually have what it takes until they're in that moment where they have to figure it out. Right. You learn by doing. Yeah, that's right. Let's talk a little bit about the House GOP. On both sides, we're seeing some infighting. First on in the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy is trying to become Speaker. It seems there's a number of members who say they will never support him. And before we get into whether he will or will not get the votes, can you help us understand the fact that he has a very slim majority means that it's harder for him to legislate and it's harder for him to get votes and every single individual vote matters more. So this is sort of indicative of a larger problem. Can you tease out for us why this, what this slim majority means for House Republicans? Yeah, well, let's actually take a step back. Kevin McCarthy has to get, in order to be Speaker of the House, he has to garner 218 votes, the majority of the House, to elect him Speaker. That's going to be very difficult. He'll have 221 or 222 Democrat uh, Republicans at the end of the day, which means he could lose three or four of them on the floor in this official vote January 3rd. And there are five or six of them who say that they won't support him. So we'll have to see what that looks like. Let's assume he does get become speaker. You know, the difference between Republicans and Democrats in my experience, which has been covering the House primarily for 13 years, is that Democrats eventually always get in line. They might complain, they might gripe, they might, you know, snipe at their leaders, but they will always get in line at the end of the day, for the most part. For Republicans, it's not enough to vote no, they have to tank the whole deal. Meaning, it, it, let's say there are enough Republicans to pass something, and there are only three or four who want to say no, they try to make it clear that it's not even acceptable for McCarthy to bring something to the floor if it's going to pass 
if it doesn't have the support of everybody. So that's a difficult dynamic. What we'll see in the next two years, the last two years of the first Biden term, is a Republican House, a Democratic Senate. So what you, you won't see a ton of big ticket, big deal legislating. You just won't. The political and substantive dynamics don't lend themselves to it. But so you'll see what we call messaging bills, Republicans passing bills that um, have no chance of becoming law, but are meant to espouse the Republican position. And McCarthy will have to struggle to get all 222 of his Republicans in line or just, you know, lose less than three. That's very, very difficult. I mean, I I, I remember Paul Ryan and John Boehner had much, the last two Republican speakers, had much larger majorities in the 230s, 240s, members of uh, House Republicans, and they struggled to get deals. So it's just a different internal political dynamic than the Democratic Party. How many-ish people in the House are in the sort of Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus? So I would put Marjorie Taylor Greene, by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene is supporting Kevin McCarthy. So um, that's, that's, that, uh, complicated it's, it's complicated <laughs> right. but he's he she's he spent a lot of time with her working and he her. and he in working her and also when everybody when she said some of these outlandish things mccarthy didn't take as tough of a line and kind of tried to help her work through those situations uh such as it is so how many people are on the far right well i mean a lot <laughs> a lot i mean the majority of house republicans I would put on the extremely conservative, or maybe not even conservative, but extremely right-wing side of the spectrum. Remember, the the congressional districts, the maps are drawn by partisan, for the most part, by partisan state legislatures, which want to increase their party's power in Congress. So most people go home every week. The, the vast majority of House Republicans and House Democrats go home every week to partisan districts. I mean, think of it this way. 435 people in the House. 200 are Republican districts. This is overly simplistic, but it's approaching actual reality. 200 are safe Republican districts. 200 are safe Democratic districts. And then there's 35 in the middle that could go either way. So that means that the vast majority of members of Congress are going home to districts that encourage partisanship and I'm trying to think of the, the right word here, partisanship and just extreme, not extreme ideology, but just adherence to the party's orthodoxy is the best way to think of it. And the reason all this matters is because they're there to legislate and you need some compromise in order to legislate. So let's talk about what could be on the agenda. In terms of policy before the midterms, when it looked like it was going to be a red wave, we kept hearing about how, you know, McCarthy was going to pursue efforts to trim Social Security in certain ways, trim Medicare. They're even going to play games maybe with uh, the uh, debt ceiling. Does that still seem on the table? No, not. Well, I will. Let me take it piece by piece. I don't think it looks to be on the table that Republicans will start messing around or, or reforming, in their view, overhauling entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Why? Because Republicans won a bunch of seats in blue districts and Democratic districts and Democratic states. So their policies are just not going to fly. Um, in those places, and they're not going to get the votes from people in upstate New York, aging population, Democratic districts where Biden won by 10, 15 points in some cases, uh, or seven to 10 points, not going to work. The debt limit has been this, um, the debt limit, just to explain, uh, is a mechanism by which the Congress has to raise the amount of money that the country can borrow to finance the country's operations, basically. It's supposed to be a safety valve against overspending. It's become this issue that has become extremely partisan 
And um, when Republicans are in the majority and the Democrats in the White House, they try to use it to their advantage. This has been going on for a dozen years, pretty much. McCarthy has told me, and we've reported uh, when I traveled with him this fall, that he wants a conversation around government spending as part of the debt limit, um, lowering the level of spending. Joe Biden's not going to do that. Barack Obama, as you remember well, uh, was not happy about doing that in, in the early 2010s when we were both covering those issues. And and um, I this is why I'm gray now at, at 37, <laughs> almost 37. So, you know, I think it's just it gets real. It just it, it, four seat margin gets complicated no matter what you do. Now, what I think we will see is investigations of the Biden administration of uh, both policy decisions, personal matters. Impeachments? Will there be attempted impeachments? Attempted, sure. Attempted, sure. Now, but will they be able to impeach him? Probably not. (laughs) I don't think so. Um, I just don't think there are the votes. I think there are, um, it is a difficult, uh, it's just a difficult political issue when, when the House is so divided. So for the audience, you'll see things like Benghazi type hearings about all manner of things that yeah, Hunter Biden, whatever, but probably not those impeachment type hearings that we saw twice. Probably not. But I mean, I, I you can't rule it out. Who knows? You can't rule I know. it out. Yeah. Right. We're not holding you to this. This well, is just- Well, someone, <laughs> someone will hold me to okay. it. There's no question we about will. that. <laughs> Can we kneel down one thing I want to understand, which is, do you see a government spending fight, first of all, between now and the end of the year? We often see reporters who like to go on the holidays want to know, will we be able to go on the holiday or will they be trying to shut down government? We don't make this. We don't make holiday plans anymore <laughs> in my life. Um, uh, yeah, there will be. Government funding runs out in less than uh, a month. Um, uh, December 16th, which is coincidentally my birthday. Happy almost. Thank you. Thank you. They're going to give me as a birthday present a funding fight. But that all said, um, what Democrats want to do while they control all three branches, because they still do control all three branches, the presidency, the House, and the Senate, they will want to enact a long-term spending bill, something that will keep the government funded funded through uh, September of next year. That just takes the risk of a government shutdown off the table for a long time. It would be a way for the president to get more Ukraine money, more COVID relief money, more uh, emergency spending money, um, while Democrats have the have the levers of power. Right. Kicking the fight into yeah. next year when everybody's in the middle of a presidential race. That sounds great. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Let's look at the Senate for a second. I know that you really focus on the House, but, you know, the Senate this week. Oh, I have to do both. You do both days, now. Yeah. OK. The Senate this week advanced a bill that will protect same sex and interracial marriage. And that's a sign that there is still some hope for some bipartisan deals. <laughs> but at the same time, it seems that there is little chance that Congress would advance any kind of bill to just basically protect the fundamental right to access abortion in America. And I just want to explain, like, if you look at polling, a majority of Americans believe that that abortion should be legal. They disagree on when it should be legal and the conditions around that. But given that that's a majority issue, why can't it get through Congress? It's a majority issue in the country. It's not a majority issue in Congress for the, all the reasons that I kind of suggested before. The country is divided. It uh, People are playing to their partisan bases. Now, I do think 
I don't know if I believe this, but I, some people believe that there is a deal on abortion rights in the Senate. I'm less, I'm less hopeful on that. I think that the the vast majority of, I mean, there are two or there most there are two basic pro-choice Republicans in Congress right now: Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski in the in the in the Senate. There might be more in the House, but not. I think the House is pretty 100% pro-life on the Republican side. I, I just don't see this getting done anytime soon. And would you explain, there's unanimity on this in the Republican side because it's a litmus test issue. Yeah. In order to become a candidate, really, you have to be pro-life in the Republican Party these days to get real funding. For the most part, for the for the most part, um, there isn't much room for not to get funding. I mean, they Republican campaign organizations will support candidates that are pro-choice and have in the past. And there've been, because they want the majority. They, they First the majority, then the policy issues, I would say, is the, the pecking order in the Republican power structure. But it is a litmus test of sorts, um, especially to get through a primary election, right? And to get through a Republican primary, it's going to be very difficult to do so if you are pro-life, if you are pro-choice, rather. And for everybody in the audience who's sensitive to language, I know that there's yes. all sorts of ways we yes. describe people who are for reproductive rights, yes. for abortion rights, opposed to them. We use these terms loosely. It's sort of a quick way to have the conversation. It's a bad habit on my on my behalf. So yes, I, I, I fall into it once in a while. Me too. Me too. So we both are. Okay, let's talk Donald Trump. His power is somewhat diminished by midterm results, but he's still got that base. So you talk to folks who are real weather vane for his power in the Republican Party. How influential is Trump at this moment? Among Republican elites, so elected members of Congress, pretty powerful in the House, less so in the Senate. Mitch McConnell doesn't like him. The Senate Republican leader, most of the Republican leadership doesn't like him. Kevin McCarthy did not endorse him this week, although I expect he probably will at some point. The question is, here's the basic question to me, Jessica, and I think this is like, it doesn't get any more complicated than this to me. And I could be wrong, and you could tell me I'm wrong, but um, I think that Donald Trump won in 2016 because people who were not independents necessarily, but I guess maybe independents, basically suggested and thought, we need something new. We don't like Hillary Clinton for whatever reason, and there are a million reasons, right and wrong, uh, that people didn't like Hillary Clinton. And we think that somebody outside of government is, this guy knows how to make deals, which he didn't. He's the guy that could shake things up. I don't think that voters are willing to, I don't know if he's going to win or lose, but my gut is, I'm not sure that voters are going to be super willing to give him benefit of the doubt and say, maybe we just need a different kind of person in the White House. Does that make sense? Or is that? Is that Yes. The thing that I always hear from this audience is the disconnect between the fact that voters overwhelmingly are exhausted by him and ready for someone new and that party leadership and Congress still hews to what he says. And they don't understand this disconnect. Why is McCarthy still paying attention to him when it seems like the country's kind of moving on? Well, McCarthy, if he was having a moment on truth serum, and just for background, I've been covering McCarthy his whole career, and I know him very well. I wrote a book that was productive about him. Tell us the name of your book so people can check it out. Uh, the Hill to Die On. You, it's it was it's three years old. So there's a lot of stuff that's happened between now and then. But it was about Congress in the era of Trump, the first two years of the Trump administration. And I've talked to McCarthy at length about this. McCarthy's view is that staying on Trump's good side would help him get candidates through primary elections without Trump's interference. Now, it turns out many of those candidates got their butts kicked. <laughs> and that's why Republicans are sitting here with a 222 seat majority instead of a 235 seat majority. One of the reasons there's policy reasons as well. So 
if McCarthy ever has a moment to reflect, I think he might reflect differently on this. But all that said, among the rabid party base, if you get on the wrong side of Trump, Trump can take can take you out. I mean, he can. He still has that power in primary elections. Look at Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio. I mean, all across the country, these Senate candidates, those were two Senate candidates, one won, one lost. Um, Trump's endorsement or disapproval is a, talk about a litmus test, that's a litmus test in a lot of primary elections. Right. I guess it's it's the negative case. It's not that everybody wants to be aligned with him. They just know that if you go against him, he could destroy your political career. Yeah, that's right. And so they have, okay. <laughs> so let's do, um, can we do a quick speed round? Yeah, please. All right. Is there a policy you think Biden can get through the next Congress in the next two years? Perhaps something on fentanyl or something on uh, maybe, maybe, maybe tech regulation, but I'm very skeptical on that. So I think it's going to be pretty difficult, but you never know what issues crop up. You just don't. Um, and, and I underestimated Biden in the beginning of his term, and he got a ton done with narrow majorities in the House and Senate, but they were narrow Democratic majorities. So I, I'm just, I'm skeptical. If Democrats pick up another seat in Georgia, if Raphael Warnock wins re-election, what are the chances Democrats find enough votes to end the filibuster? I think slim, but I don't feel strongly about that. And I haven't done enough reporting to actually know that. Uh, Joe Manchin is still against it. Kirsten Sinema is still against it. And they need, they need at a minimum 50 votes to get it done. And that already takes them below that threshold. So, and I think there are other people who are, that are skeptical. And you actually don't really need to do it right now if you're Senate Democrat because there's not going to be a ton of legislation coming from the House that Democrats want to pass. That's true. That they can't get 60 It needs to on. originate in the House, yeah. Well, not no, not only that. Or you need the, you need the approval of the House at right, least. Right, yeah. exactly. So it, it, would be, it would be a risk with that. I don't know if it's a risk, but it would be a move without really much of a reward at this point, yeah. That's true. Do you think these midterms showed elected officials in Congress that we are evenly divided so they need to work better together? Or do the slim margins make each side more inclined to cater to their base? I think the latter, unfortunately for the country. I don't think, I mean, Republicans did a press conference this week about Hunter Biden's laptop. So you don't hear a ton of like, <laughs> you don't hear a ton of like, let's do something good. How many people went as Hunter Biden's laptop for Halloween in Washington? <laughs> I didn't see any. I'm sure millions, <laughs> really? I'm shocked. I'm sure so millions yeah. um, have. Um, but no, I, I, I don't think the message is they should work together. But um, perhaps it should be because they had a bad election cycle. Republicans did. That was a layup. Anyone up there look like a promising Democratic candidate to challenge Biden in 24 if he doesn't run? Let's just say if he doesn't run. Oh, who in the Senate would run? I I think Amy Klobuchar would probably run. Maybe Cory Booker gives it another look. Maybe Tim Kaine gives it a look. I don't know. I haven't asked around. I I think you have to look at governors, too. I think Roy Cooper of North Carolina is somebody. J.B. Pritzker is somebody of Illinois who's somebody who would probably take a look at it. There are a lot of people out there who we're not thinking about. So tell us, where can people find Punchbowl? What are the venues and products you guys put out? Punchbowl News is at punchbowl.news. It is three times a day. Morning is free. Afternoon and evening are part of our premium plan. So that's where we are primarily. Our podcast is daily, Monday through Friday, The Daily Punch, which is you can find on Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts, as they say. And uh, we do events around the country. You're great. Jake, thank you so much for your time and for your serious work. Thank you so much. Now we turn to Axios Managing Editor for Politics, Margaret Taleb. I caught her just as she was wrapping up one meeting and setting up for us, and she reminisced a bit about our early days covering D.C. together way back in the early 2000s. 
I think we first started working together, not in the same job, but side by side in the Obama years when you were at Bloomberg and I was at CNN. Did you cover Bush? I moved back to Washington in January of 2005. So that was right in between. It was a couple of years after Pelosi had become the minority leader for the Democratic Party, the leader of the Democratic Party, but they were in the minority. Uh, and a couple of years before she became speaker, just watching her, just thinking about like the narrative arc of her leadership. It was, it's been my entire time in Washington as an adult covering politics has been Nancy Pelosi's first speakership, then, you know, her exile to the minority for, for passing Obamacare and then her reemergence and her, her positioning as kind of the, uh, the formal strategic democratic resistance against Trump. I mean, the extraordinary role that she played in, in shepherding those the two impeachment efforts, like an extraordinary leader, an extra, whatever you think of her politics, an extraordinary uh, powerhouse who kind of her story transcends gender. I mean, her story is about gender, but it's also just about the exercise of political power. First, I just want to, I do think we have to talk about Trump. And I know people sometimes chafe at that and they think it's the media focuses on him and makes him. But the problem is, is that he has been the most powerful figure in the Republican Party for the last six years. And what he says and does moves the party. So if we ignore him, if we ignore him, we create a news bubble. So I think it's still worth discussing. And what I'm curious to know, is Trump still the most powerful figure in the GOP? And if so, can you help the audience understand why that is? I mean, it's the big question of the moment. Uh, after the midterm elections, the consensus is that former President Donald Trump has been weakened because so many of the candidates that he promoted uh, uh, not only lost outright, but in a couple of high profile, you know, Senate cases were the deciding factors for why the Democrats uh, were able to hold the Senate majority. So, um, you know, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters, um, the fact that Herschel Walker was not uh, able to uh, to win decisively before a runoff and probably has a weakened chance in the runoff, the candidate quality in some of these cases. So all of that helps to weaken Donald Trump. Uh, but what helps to strengthen Donald Trump? Uh, the fact that um, so many of his supporters and folks with whom he's aligned, uh, particularly on the in the right wing, uh, particularly in the House, uh, on the Republican Party side, uh, are uh, are incumbents or were elected or reelected, and uh, will be able to demand higher leadership profile roles in the incoming Congress because of how narrow the Republican majority looks like it will be. And also, why else is Donald Trump strong? Because he has a core following in his base. It is a clear minority of Americans. Clear majorities of Americans do not want him to be president again or run for president again. But within just purely the Republican Party electorate, uh, poll after poll after poll shows uh, that he still uh, has strong backing from Republicans. Now, uh, what's changed uh, since the midterms and even before the midterms? It's primarily the rise of Ron DeSantis, uh, who's the governor of Florida, re-elected governor of Florida, and uh, increasingly a national figure. The rise of DeSantis as a uh, potential alternative to Trump um, has got a lot of Republicans uh post-January 6th, excited. And Axios, as you know, reported just in the last couple of days that Stephen Schwartzman uh, is now saying um, that he is not going to back 
Donald Trump in the 2024 presidential race. Steve Schwartzman is the CEO. He's the chairman of Blackstone, a major private equity giant. And he was a really important backer for Trump in years past. He's not the only one. Uh, there's Ken Griffin from Citadel, uh, the hedge fund. Another, uh, He's a billionaire who has uh, come out in favor now of Governor DeSantis. So these are two important uh, figureheads in terms of the signals that they send to other donors and to strategists and activists and elected Republicans inside the party. But I just think to look at Trump's lackluster rollout and some of these defections, some of these early polls and say, well, it's over, that would really be premature. Uh, you know, having covered the 2016 race, everybody thought on the day when the Billy Bush, you know, tape of uh, Trump saying where, where yeah. he should gra- grab, grab the women. Yeah. I don't need to, yes, that. <laughs> uh, a lot of people were like, oh, well, he's done. You know, we all know um, that uh, we know the rest of the story now that he wasn't. Count Trump out at your own, yeah, peril. Yep. So now that we've established that, let's talk about Ron DeSantis. Uh, <laughs> we just, he had a dominating performance in the election. We already talked about the polling, but for folks who actually don't know much about him, why is he so popular in the GOP? What are his policy positions that are different from Trump? I'll tell you, I think he's popular for two reasons. One is that he is has become uh, kind of uh, extremely adept at being a champion of the culture wars in a way that energize his base. And I know culture wars is a shortcut for whatever you want it to be, but particularly in the area of schools, what's taught in public schools, uh, what shouldn't be taught in public schools, and tapping into those kind of uh, suburban right of center parental concerns, uh, whether it has to do with COVID and the freedom to vaccinate or mask or not do those things, or whether it comes to um, uh, social issues uh, around uh, children and gay rights and the teaching of racial and social justice issues. Uh, he he really found a moment there with that. And I think, and, and in a state where people were receptive to it, I don't know if Ron DeSantis's brand of culture wars would have worked as well in, in Virginia or in Pennsylvania, to be honest, but in Florida, which has become a much more conservative state over the course of the last decade or two, um, it it, it met where enough of his electorate was at. And I think another reason why people see him as a popular alternative to Donald Trump is that he's just much more disciplined than Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a lot of unforced errors, can't seem to let go of, of the last election, which he lost. DeSantis, yeah, he's, he's not a carbon copy of Donald Trump, but he is a conservative Republican. One of the outcomes of the midterms was uh, that election deniers, many election deniers lost, not all. Is election denial still a threat? Sure, 100%. Uh, but I do think it is doesn't pose the threat in some of those key battleground states that it might have had some of these candidates ascended to uh, governorships, uh, attorney general status, or secretary of state status. Those are roles that uh, both figuratively and literally uh, greatly guide the administration of elections, the interpretation of election law, uh, the messaging around presidential elections, and the ability to try to pull off like a kind of redo or reinterpretation of what what uh, what an electoral vote, uh, you know, what what the people said through the electoral college process. So I think it, I wouldn't say that people who are worried about election denialism should uh, breathe a great sigh of relief and say, um, well, you know, uh, they killed the beast, it's over. Um, I don't think that's true at all. But I think it could, it, it could have been a lot more alarming if 
most of those candidates had won instead of lost. But if you look inside Congress, particularly in the House, again, uh, many folks were elected or reelected to office who did question the 2020 election results, who have never said, you know what, uh, in the clear light of day, now that all these audits have been done, it's clear that Joe Biden won, it's clear that there was no problems, you know, we should move away from this myth. There are a lot of folks in office who have never said that. Okay, who are the other Democrats who could be nominee? We know about Buttigieg, Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar. There are some governors, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Roy Cooper. What? Why are people talking about these folks and what's their appeal to the Democratic Party? So um, Gretchen Whitmer is the most interesting of this group to me. And just to uh, be clear, uh, there's a big caveat. She has said now publicly already that that Biden has said that he uh, is his intention to, um, you know, to run again and that she will support him if he does. So she is not putting herself out there as an alternative to Joe Biden. She's saying she'll stand by Joe Biden if he runs again. Uh, having said that, she is a woman. She is dynamic. She is in that, um, you know, sweet spot, the Gen X uh, sweet spot of potentially the next generation. Although as a Gen Xer, I think we're all about to get passed over for millennials, but that's another conversation <laughs> for a different podcast. Uh, but I- or for our therapists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Or just for our podcast uh, friends who can be our therapists. Um, <laughs> that's also good. These yeah. issues. But also, you know, she's the governor of Michigan, which is an important battleground state. It's going to be an important state for 2024. And it's important in terms of redefining, you know, who the Democrats are messaging to. I mean, it used to be that the Democratic Party was clearly uh, staking out its claim as the party of uh, union members, the party of the working class. And in recent years, um, Republicans have really sought to make inroads. They want to be the party of the working class. They've had some success in portraying Democrats either as elites or elitists or as uh, being too pulled by progressive voters to speak for uh, the center of America. The problem that Democrats face with rural voters is undeniable. And while uh, when I think of Michigan, I mostly think of Detroit. That's not a rural area, but Michigan is a uh, part of what you'd consider the middle of the country. It has a much more of a ethic that can relate to rural voters, uh, working class voters, and non-coastal voters. For all those reasons, Whitmer is a very compelling and interesting person to watch. Noisy question, but how is the collapse of Twitter impacting reporting or not yet? Oh my God, it's so fascinating. <laughs> First of all, you can look and see which reporters love Twitter and which reporters you know, were always kind of dragged along. I think what I hear from most journalists uh, once you separate kind of the the people who are in it for the adrenaline burst of automatic validation or hate, you know, whatever, is it's just that there's a concern. We've all come to rely on Twitter as the place where news breaks first, where you where you can check and see what's a CEO thinking, what's a politician thinking, what is their adversary thinking. Like it's where news kind of gets metabolized in the initial burst. And without Twitter, where where would that happen? Where is the where is going to be the one stop? shop now where you can kind of do that. I think for most journalists, that's really the question. Uh, I think for most of the public, <laughs> not sure that people outside of, of these bubbles are as hung up about it as uh, as our reporting classes. Margaret, thank you for your time today and for all your work and for being such a ally and friend through our many travels together in the years. I really appreciate you including me. Thanks to you. Thanks to your listeners for uh, for their time. And we'll talk to you soon. And we always check out Axios all day, every day. You all should too. Thanks, Margaret. 
Thanks for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And you can follow me at Jessica Yellen on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at News Not Noise on YouTube and TikTok. You can subscribe to the News Not Noise letter at newsnotnoise.bulletin.com. And you can support this work on patreon.com slash newsnotnoise so I can keep giving you information, not a panic attack.